0: The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis Chapter 15 The End of This Story and the Beginning of All the Others You need no rings when I am with you, said the voice of Aslan. The children blinked and looked about them. They were once more in the wood between the worlds. Uncle Andrew lay on the grass, still asleep. Aslan stood beside them. Come, he said. It is time that you went back. There are two things to see to first, a warning and a command. Look here, children. They looked and saw a little hollow in the grass, the grassy bottom, warm and dry. When you were last here, said Aslan, that hollow was a pool, and when you jumped into it, you came to the world where a dying sun shone over the ruins of Charn. There is no pool now. That world is ended as if it had never been. Let the race of Adam and Eve take warning. Yes, Aslan, said both the children. But Polly added, but we're not quite as bad as that world, are we, Aslan? Not yet, daughter of Eve, he said. Not yet, but you are growing more like it. It is not certain that some wicked one of your race will not find out a secret as evil as the deplorable word, and use it to destroy all living things. And soon, very soon, before you are an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Empress Jadis. Let your world beware. That is the warning. Now for the command. As soon as you can, take from this uncle of yours his magic rings and bury them so that no one can use them again. Both children were looking up into the lion's face as he spoke these words. And all at once, they never knew exactly how it happened. The face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating, and such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered them that they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just round some corner or just behind some door, would come back and make them sure, deep down inside, that all was well. Next minute all three of them, Uncle Andrew now awake, came tumbling into the noise, heat and hot smells of London. They were on the pavement outside the Ketterley's front door, and except that the witch, the horse and the cabbie were gone, everything was exactly as they had left it. There was the lamp post, with one arm missing, there was the wreck of the hansom cab, and there was the crowd. Everyone was still talking, and people were kneeling beside the damaged policeman, saying things like, He's coming round, or How do you feel now, old chap? Or The ambulance will be here in a jiffy. Great Scott, thought Diggory. I believe the whole adventure's taken no time at all. Most people were wildly looking round for Jadis and the horse. No one took any notice of the children, for no one had seen them go or noticed them coming back. As for Uncle Andrew, what between the state of his clothes and the honey on his face, he could not have been recognized by anyone. Fortunately, the front door of the house was open, and the housemaid was standing in the doorway staring at the fun. What a day that girl was having. So the children had no difficulty in bustling Uncle Andrew indoors before anyone asked any questions. He raced up the stairs before them, and at first they were very afraid he was heading for his attic and meant to hide his remaining magic rings, but they needn't have bothered. What he was thinking about was the bottle in his wardrobe, and he disappeared at once into his bedroom and locked the door. When he came out again, which was not for a long time, he was in his dressing gown and made straight for the bathroom. "'Can you get the other rings, Paul?' said Diggory. "'I want to go see Mother.' "'Right. See you later,' said Polly, and clattered up the attic stairs. Then Diggory took a minute to get his breath, and then went softly into his mother's room. And there she lay, as he had seen her lie so many other times, propped up on the pillows, with a thin, pale face that would make you cry to look at it. Diggory took the apple of life out of his pocket. And just as the witch Jadis had looked different when you saw her in our world instead of in her own— So the fruit of that mountain garden looked different, too. There were, of course, all sorts of colored things in the bedroom. The colored counterpane on the bed, the wallpaper, the sunlight from the window, and Mother's pretty, pale blue dressing jacket. But the moment Diggory took the apple out of his pocket, all those things seemed to have scarcely any color at all. Every one of them, even the sunlight, looked faded and dingy. The brightness of the apple threw strange lights on the ceiling. Nothing else was worth looking at. You couldn't look at anything else. And the smell of the apple of youth was as if there was a window in the room that opened on heaven. Oh, darling, how lovely, said Diggory's mother. You will eat it, won't you, please, said Diggory. I don't know what the doctor would say, she answered. But really, I almost feel as if I could. He peeled it and cut it up, and gave it to her piece by piece. And no sooner had she finished it, than she smiled and her head sank back on the pillow and she was asleep. A real, natural, gentle sleep without any of those nasty drugs, which was, as Diggory knew, the thing in the whole world that she wanted most. And he was sure now that her face looked a little different. He bent down and kissed her very softly and stole out of the room with a beating heart, taking the core of the apple with him for the rest of that day whenever he looked at the things about him and saw how ordinary and unmagical they were he hardly dared to hope when he w- when he remembered the face of Aslan, he did hope that evening he buried the core of the apple in the back garden next morning when the doctor made his usual visit figgury leaned over the banisters to listen he heard the doctor come out with aunt lettie and say miss Kittily, This is the most extraordinary case I have known in my whole medical career. It is, it is like a miracle. I wouldn't tell the little boy anything at present. We don't want to raise any false hopes, but in my opinion. Then his voice became too low to hear. That afternoon, he went down the garden and whistled their agreed secret signal for Polly. She hadn't been able to get back the day before. What luck, said Polly, looking over the wall. I mean, about your mother. I think... I think it's going to be all right, said Diggory. But if you don't mind, I'd really rather not talk about it yet. What about the rings? I've got them all, said Polly. Look, it's all right. I'm wearing gloves. Let's bury them. Yes, let's. I've marked the place where I buried the core of the apple yesterday. Then Polly came over the wall and they went together to the place. But as it turned out, Diggory need not have marked the place. Something was already coming up. It was not growing so that you could see it grow as the new trees had done in Narnia, but it was already well above ground. They got a trowel and buried all the magic rings, including their own ones, in a circle around it. About a week after this, it was quite certain that Diggory's mother was getting better. About a fortnight later, she was able to sit out in the garden. And a month later, that whole house had become a different place. Aunt Letty did everything that Mother liked. Windows were opened, frau curtains were drawn back to brighten up the rooms. There were new flowers everywhere and nicer things to eat. And the old piano was tuned, and Mother took up her singing again and had such games with Diggory and Polly that Aunt Letty would say, I declare, Mabel, you're the biggest baby of the three. When things go wrong, you'll find they usually go on getting worse for some time. But when things once start going right, they often go on getting better and better. After about six weeks of this lovely life, there came a long letter from father in India, which had wonderful news in it. Old great Uncle Kirk had died, and this meant, apparently, that father was now very rich. He was going to retire and come home from India forever and ever. And the great big house in the country, which Diggory had heard of all his life and never seen, would now be their home. The big house with the suits of armor and the stables, the kennels, the river, the park, the hothouses, the vineries, the woods, and the mountains behind it. So that Diggory felt just as sure as you that they were all going to live happily ever after. But perhaps you would like to know just one or two things more. Polly and Diggory were always great friends, and she came nearly every holiday to stay with them at their beautiful house in the country. And that was where she learned to ride and swim and milk and bake and climb. In Narnia, the beasts lived in great peace and joy, and neither the witch nor any other enemy came to trouble that pleasant land for many hundred years. King Frank and Queen Helen and their children lived happily in Narnia, and their second son became king of Archenland. The boys married nymphs, and the girls married wood gods and river gods. The lamppost, which the witch had planted without knowing it, shone day and night in the Narnian forest, so that the place where it grew came to be called Lantern Waste. And when, many years later, another child from our world got into Narnia on a snowy night, she found the light still burning. And that adventure was, in a way, connected with the ones I have just been telling you it was like this. The tree which sprang from the apple that Diggory planted in the back garden lived and grew into a fine tree. Growing in the soil of our world, far out of the sound of Aslan's voice and far from the young heir of Narnia, it did not bear apples that would revive a dying woman as Diggory's mother had been revived, though it did bear apples more beautiful than any others in England, and they were extremely good for you, though not fully magical but inside itself, in the very sap of it, the tree, so to speak, never forgot that other tree in Narnia to which it belonged. Sometimes it would move mysteriously when there was no wind blowing. I think that when this happened, there were high winds in Narnia and the English tree quivered because, at that moment, the Narnia tree was rocking and swaying in a strong southwestern gale. However, that might be, it was proved later that there was still magic in its wood. For when Diggory was quite middle-aged, and he was a famous learned man, a professor and a great traveler by that time, and the Ketterleys' old house belonged to him, there was a great storm all over the south of England which blew the tree down. He couldn't bear to have it simply chopped up for firewood, so he had part of the timber made into a wardrobe, which he put in his big house in the country. And though he himself did not discover the magic properties of that wardrobe, someone else did. That was the beginning of all the comings and goings between Narnia and our world, which you can read of in other books. When Diggory and his people went to live in the big country house, they took Uncle Andrew to live with them. For Diggory's father father said, we must try to keep the old fellow out of mischief. And it isn't fair that poor Letty should have him always on her hands. Uncle Andrew never tried any magic again as long as he lived. He had learned his lesson and in his old age he became a nicer and less selfish old man than he had ever been before. But he always liked to get visitors alone in the billiard room and tell them stories about a mysterious lady a foreign royalty with whom he had driven about London. A devilish temper she had he would say, Mm but she was a dim fine woman, sir. A dim fine woman.